Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us here in New York is Joe Quinlan, head of CIO Market Strategy for Merrill and Bank of America Private Bank. Good morning to you, Joe. Good morning. Let's just start with those trade talks, shall we? We have got increasingly comfortable that everything is going to be okay. Is that comfort misplaced? Who says everything's going to be okay? I keep, I'm looking, John. I, I know the you did the same thing. The administration's the only one telling me everything's going to be okay. And certainly the market's not pricing yeah. at the downside, is it, Joe? No, I, I think the markets have been a little complacent about the deadlines being missed and the fact that they're, you know, we're traveling over to Beijing. Beijing's coming to Washington. So we're going to we're gonna get to that point where is there a deal or not? What's the enforcement uh, issues? What, what actually is happening? What's in the deal? Um, that could actually move the market. So we're getting close to crunch time. We're not there just yet. But I think the weaker numbers out of China, uh, the PMI, you know, maybe that's going to like give some urgency or just momentum to, for the Chinese to get the deal done in, in some shape or form. Well, let's talk about that. I think a lot of people are comfortable with it for two reasons. One is diminished escalation risk. That's an important part of all of this. That seems to have diminished over the last few months. The other is the stimulus that the Chinese are pumping through. It seems to be having a limited effect on the Chinese economy. At this point, yeah, the stimulus, every dollar invested now in the infrastructure is giving less back. And, and that's just because of the size of the Chinese economy and how it's shifting more towards consumption. So the, the Chinese need to rebalance growth, but that's very hard to do in the midst of a major trade war with not just the United States, but also Europe as well. Europe's kind of yeah. jumped, jumped on, on board as well. I think it was an analyst this morning that said we need to draw a distinction between avoiding a hard landing versus reviving global growth. It's the global growth aspect of this that fascinates me. We've had industrial output from South Korea down, Japan last week plunging, Europe just a little bit better today. Of all places, How, how yes. encouraging <laughs> is it that Eurozone GDP just shows a little bit of life? It's very encouraging. Remember, after the United States, the European Union, with or without the UK, is the second largest economy in the world, 17, 18 trillion dollars. They've been more of a deflationary drag over the last, say, three quarters, four quarters. So any signs of life, any pulse, particularly coming out of the Mediterranean, you know, Italy and Spain, that's nice news to have. It would be, nice, would be even nicer if Germany got on board and stopped running surpluses, started to look to spend on infrastructure. So there, there's, there's signs of hope yeah. in jo Europe. Joe, there, there's a coup in Venezuela right now, folks, as reported by Associated Press and many other services. We'll get to that in a bit. Bill Dudley of the New York Fed just drops a bombshell on Bloomberg Opinion just moments ago. Thank you, Michael McKee, uh, for showing that to me. And the basic idea from the former president of the New York Fed is we should drop the target rate. To John's good questions on the economic cacophony out there right now, what is the Fed to do? Do they have an underlying theory into tomorrow's meeting? I, I don't really, maybe a theory, Tom, but in practical practical terms, it's a moving target. I mean, they adjust their inflation. They, they've missed their inflation targets for over a decade. Why not adjust them? It's like <laughs> why, not, your head. why not continue why, why the not, trend? <laughs> right, or why not like rethink this one? And I, but you know, the, the, I, think the, I think the Fed fears the minute they readjust or reset, then yeah, inflation and spikes and here we go again. So I hate to do this, but I got to do a shout out to one of our listeners, John Farrow, uh, yesterday, who was way out front on the inflation just isn't 
there. I mean, service is flat. Goods is rolling over again. And as Bill Dudley writes for Bloomberg Opinion, they're boxed into a corner. Seems to be a spread, though, Tom, between various reads of inflation. There's certainly a big difference between where PCE is and where CPI is Mm -hmm. right now. If you're looking at some of the consumers, goods companies here in the United States, they've managed to put up prices. And I imagine for many of our listeners, their experience with inflation is very different to the Fed's view on inflation as well, Joe. It is, but it hasn't. It's not that crushing inflation that's taking away disposable income. Yeah. Set aside gasoline, but so it, it's. I think through productivity gains, the consumer having a wage inc- wage gain that it's passing. It's like we can we can absorb the, the kind of those price increases. So we've got to think about how you push all of this through financial markets. Equities yesterday closing at an all time high. It's easy when you're at a record high to say, you know what, I'm cautious now. I'm cautiously mm-hmm. optimistic. I think things are still okay. But I don't like it when we're up at these levels. What do you say to clients right now? We're telling clients, particularly the ones that remember Christmas Eve, the massacre, massacre and the V-shaped recovery that, you know, we've reset. We're kind of all-time highs now. How do, we go, how do we go higher here? We need more global growth to get that traction. We need traction out of China. We need to get the trade disputes behind us. We need more clarity from the Fed on how they're, what, what their inflationary outlook looks as well. Europe is a positive surprise, but, you know, Europe, they're, they're good one quarter, the next quarter they're down. So we need kind of like the global growth story to gain traction, and that's got to come from the United States, Europe, and China. What is the market telling us? What is the stock market on a log basis is on a new slope? John, are we calling it a melt-up? Not yet. <clears throat> I mean, is Man City or Liverpool a melt-up? Um, certainly Liverpool relative to I mean, the Red Sox are a meltdown, but... That sounds are, are, like a meltdown. Are, it is a meltdown. Are we in a melt-up? Well, the Philadelphia Phillies melt up. Um, it is, yes. I mean, you. but I would think the markets are telling you that there's no place really else to put your money to work. Other exactly. Than and here we're, and we've seen this movie over and over again. Don't fight it. We're telling clients don't fight that kind of. Then sentiment. how do you intelligently deploy capital today with the moonshot in a selected eight stocks or whatever it is? Well, you don't want to overpay. I mean, so you're looking at value in healthcare, maybe, and in, in, even in kind of the biotechnology. You want to look at, say, some financials, good dividend payers. The key here is yeah. not to get caught in overpay. What do you do with a busted blue chip? Michael Roman of 3M will join Bloomberg today. He's got a real, I mean, I, I don't want you to talk an individual yeah. stock of 3M, but how do you approach a busted blue chip? Very cautiously, carefully, but looking, thinking long term, do they have the global presence in the yeah. leadership to, to turn it around, work through the structural problems, because if they do, then that, that there, there's value there to buy it today. I don't, you yeah. know, we, I don't, you know yeah. some of these blue chips have been around for over 100 years. They're going to outlast this cycle, this market, right. everything else. Joe Quinlan, thank you so much for being with us today with a cacophony of a coup in Venezuela and greatly, greatly appreciate your time with Bloomberg Surveillance today. He is with Bank of America. Merrill Lynch is their head of market strategy. Now for an important interview on Venezuela. Marian Jimenez Morales is at Oxford. She's also been an advisor to Mr. Guaido and joins us from Berlin. Marian, what is your relationship with Mr. Guaido? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm an academic, so I'm a political scientist studying the situation of opposition in electoral autocracies. Uh, Juan Guaido does represent me as a Venezuelan, uh, and I have tried through uh, several briefings to help um, 
understand the situation in Venezuela. So my relationship with him is that he's the president of my country. Alex Conan, who worked with Senator Rubio of Florida, told Bloomberg Surveillance moments ago that Mr. Rubio is alone in Washington. What does Mr. Guaido need right now from the United States, from U.S. military, and from President Trump? I think um, there are several several points. Um, so very important right now is to uh, not polarize the situation. So Venezuela needs the U.S. to help maintain uh, real information about what's going on and spread the real news, basically, uh, to not uh, feed to fake news uh, in the U.S., so we know that uh, Twitter and other social media have been shut down in Venezuela. So right now it's very important to inform the population um, about what's going on. And because there's so well, many Venezuelans inside the U.S., um, we need also both base there to inform Venezuelans in right. the country. But Mary- and I also think that the U.S. needs to put pressure on the United Nations, for example, uh, on Antonio Gutierrez, but also on Michelle Bachelet um, to closely follow what's happening in Venezuela. This is important, Uh, Marion. Marion, with the news flow that we're seeing this morning, my colleague John Farrell makes a very good point. The Associated Press is calling this a coup. You're going lighter on it. Is this a coup going on now or not? Um, well, you know, the government is saying that this is a coup. What uh, President Juan Guaido has said is that military officers are now obeying by the Constitution and by the um, by the rules of the transition to democracy in Venezuela. And I think that right now it's very important to follow what the president is saying. Obviously, we will hear uh, two, two uh, type of news on the situation in Venezuela, and this is why I'm saying that the role of the U.S. is crucial in this. Yeah. We need to really focus on the real news, and talking about a coup is, I think, not helpful because we don't have a legitimate... Uh, Maduro is not the legitimate president, and um, right now the military forces have to listen to what 90% of the population wants, which is uh, peaceful uh, regime change. Yeah, Marianne, for for someone who might have just tuned in, it might be somewhat confusing as the way you uh, refer to the president. The president of Venezuela depends on who you ask, of course. You'll appreciate that. And I understand that when you refer to the president, you are referring to Juan Guaido. For the purpose of this conversation, let's just talk about Juan Guaido as the opposition leader and uh, Nicolas Maduro, the head of the government, as things stand. Juan Guaido is calling for a military uprising. Now, I'm trying to understand what is happening on the ground as to how much military control, military influence Juan Guaido currently has. Do you have any clarity on that? Well, these things are uh, obviously uh, quite tense and complicated at this uh, moment in time. Juan Guaido cannot reveal uh, his uh, strategy, obviously, because the government is trying to counter uh, all of what has been done within uh, the opposition camp. So I think that we'll have to wait uh, for a few hours to see how many people will join this call and also right. how many well, other you, military officers. Well, will well said. That. Do you have any measurement or any knowledge to John's good question of the size of military support for Mr. Guaido? Well, we've seen that many, uh, over 1,500 now, are uh, in Colombia. And we've, all, we've also seen that there are some important forces already gathered at, at the airbase in La Carlota. Uh, but it's way too early 
to say any more. We will have to wait a couple more hours to see how many more will join. There is now high pressure uh, from Maduro and Diosdado Cabello on the military who is still uh, in the barracks um, to sort of not break away. But we know that there is massive discontent within the middle ranks. Now it's really important to closely follow the high ranks and whether we'll see any... um, are flipping within the next few hours. Just in terms of the support and the friendship provided from the likes of Russia's Vladimir Putin and China's Xi Jinping to the current leader of Venezuela, President Nicolas Maduro, how important is that? It's very important that Russia and China understand that uh, 90% of Venezuelans want a regime change. So uh, we could say that for him, for Maduro, it's really important to maintain these two allies uh, because they have been uh, isolated internationally uh, because more than uh, 55 uh, countries support Juan Guaido. So what now China and Russia need to understand is that there will be eventually a regime change in Venezuela and that if they're interested in maintaining their economic investments and looking forward uh, in the future, they will have to, uh, at least if they do not want to publicly endorse uh, Juan Guaido, they should at least uh, back down and uh, take away the the support from Maduro. Marion, before we let you go, I'd just like some insight from you as to how the current leader of the country, Nicolás Maduro, maintains military support through promotions to the general level, through payments to these individuals within the military. Just how does he do that and how much has that influence diminished over the last year or so? Well, this is a crucial question. So Maduro, because he's not a very charismatic and uh, not very popular and also not a military officer himself, he had to uh, give up uh, parts of the economy and parts of the political control of the country over to the military. So it's not just that the the military or the high ranks of the military receive um, uh, benefits, uh, but it's also that they run the illicit economy. So we know that the military is involved right. in narco-trafficking, but also illicit mining, etc. So right. they are literally well, running parts of the illicit economy, which gives them a lot of um, resources. Ms. Mimines, let me ask uh, one final question. It's beyond a delicate question. And we see this, folks, with headlines out that Mr. Saab, the public prosecutor, saying, quote, actions will face consequence of the law. It, what danger or risk is Mr. Guaido on this Tuesday morning? Well, there is, of course, danger that uh, he will be, uh, he, he can be jailed at any time. We know that his immunity was taken away a few weeks ago. Uh, so obviously right now the official version of the regime, Maduro and all his supporters, uh, is to intimidate the population to not leave uh, and hit the street and also to intimidate and put pressure yeah. on Juan Guaido and people closer to him to basically back down uh, and go back. Yeah. Uh, You've been very generous with your time. Marion Jimenez Morales, thank you so much at the University of Oxford speaking to us from Berlin today. Karen, thanks so much. Earlier this morning, two conversations with the lecturer from the University of Oxford, a lecturer Imanez, out of Berlin on her Venezuela, 
her support of Mr. Guaido. I thought those were very informative. This is definitive and is made ever more so as Mike Allen at Axios leads today with why President Trump is focused on Venezuela. Joining us now, Alex Conan, Communications Director and a lot of leadership for Senator Marco Rubio. To remind you, Marco Rubio with three tweets out immediately on uh, these efforts by Mr. Guaido, the AP calling it a coup, others saying no. Alex, we need to catch up on this story. Mike Allen goes back to a pivotal moment. That's a quote, a pivotal moment with Senator Rubio, Vice President Pence, and the president with Lillian Tintori in the Oval Office. Discuss why Marco Rubio cares so much about Lillian Tintori of Caracas. Hey, Tom, thanks for having me. Uh, Great to talk to you. Yeah, so in February 2017, I think it was Marco's first meeting with uh, President Trump in the Oval Office. He brought uh, the wife of a a well-known Venezuelan dissident who has been under house arrest. He brought her into the Oval Office to make the personal pitch to the president about why Venezuela mattered. And 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 Trump got it. He I mean, he he was on board from that very first meeting. And I, I was Marco right. Rubio's communications director on the presidential campaign. I, I don't work for him now, but I keep in touch. And I know that this is an important issue for him. And he's been working very closely with the Trump administration to ratchet up pressure. And I think it's led directly to the events that we've seen this morning. Where is that pressure right now? I don't want to get into the delicacies of your conversations with Senator Rubio in the last 24 hours. But describe the pressure now moving forward into this week for the Trump administration, for the president, and for his Pentagon? Well, I think the I think Marco Rubio's tweets this morning, as you point out, he's been very active on Twitter. And the big part about it is trying to separate Maduro from the military. And, and according to the videos we've seen out of Venezuela this morning, it certainly appears that at least some parts of the military are breaking with uh, the Maduro regime. I think what Marco is trying to do is encourage the rest of the military to, 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 to join the opposition, uh, so we can be rid of Maduro once and for all, and so that we frankly can begin to put this country back together to rebuild the democracy there, to bring stability, and then to bring basic essentials like food and medicine, which the Maduro right. regime has been keeping out of the country. From where you sit in your advice to the senator uh, from Florida, does the Pentagon have an interest in Venezuela? Is there a plan for the Pentagon in Venezuela, or is it almost just humanitarian assistance? I can't speak to that directly, but clearly I think having a a failed regime, a failed state in uh, the southern in in South America, in the Western Hemisphere, is potentially destabilizing for the entire region. And and Mm -hmm. clearly what we've seen just at the Mexican border so far this year, emanating out of Central America, it's, pr- it's clear that, that problems in South America and Central America don't stay in South America and Central America. And I think that's the case that the president or that Marco Rubio has been making to the president, that what happens in our hemisphere impacts Americans directly. Uh, we have a vested stake in the outcome. And that's why it's so important that we continue to put pressure on the Maduro regime as they have in recent in recent months. The, 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 the granularity of this is simple. Rubio, Pence, Trump. Uh, clearly. What else do you need to see from Republican leadership and particularly Senate leadership? I think of the late Richard Luger, who joined us just months ago, two, three months ago, uh, dying here in the last few days. Where is the Luger of the modern Republican Party? Well, frankly, in this in the in the Senate, we see a lot of strong 
foreign policy leaders. Uh, clearly, Marco Rubio taking his leadership on the Western Hemisphere and human rights around around the world. Uh, but then also leaders like Senator Tom Cotton, who's been very active. Uh, Joni Ernst, who I actually also worked for. Uh, okay, fine. So what, what do they need to do right now? Right now, with the headlines flying by on the Bloomberg terminal, coup, we, not coup, whatever, what, are the, what does that leadership need to do to think, assist the people of Venezuela? I think, it's incumbent on, I think it's incumbent on every political leader in, in the U.S. and Washington, Republican and Democrat, to make it clear <laughs> that any attempt by the Maduro regime to cause physical uh, violence uh, to maintain their power will not be accepted by the U.S., uh, and that all options are on the table. I think President Trump has made it clear that, that all options are on the table and mm-hmm. that uh, the military, for the sake of the people of right. Venezuela, for the sake of their own futures, now is the time for them to break from Maduro. Alex Conan, thank you so much. Formally with uh, uh, Senator Rubio, and of course, this important day as the senator tweets out on uh, the events of Venezuela. Right now, we have a vote of confidence that we'll get wisdom from Brooks Sutherland on Generous Electric as well. What's the x-axis for Lawrence Kolb? How fast does he have to move to continue to resurrect what Immelt wrought? Well, I think you just have to look at John Flannery's tenure, and he got about 14 months. And so I think it's you can apply that timeline to Larry Culp as well and say, you know, at that point, investors are going to want to see the turnaround taking root. Now, to his credit, he has moved much more swiftly on the divestiture front in terms of bringing down GE's debt load and as far as cutting right. costs and, and trying to put those operations What do they on. say about power? Karen Ulbohart says the power timeline's a lot longer. That's not that good, is it? <laughs> it's not that good, but it's just the reality of it. This is a business where there's structural change happening and people are shifting more and more to cheaper renewable energy products and GE also sort of shot right. itself in the foot with the way it priced these contracts with the Alstom acquisition. So it has a lot to do just to sort of get back to even where it was, let alone think about really growing that business. Brooke doesn't know that Paul Sweeney, I can go in and do a common size bad will analysis <laughs> exactly. of GE just like that. Are they going to do a craft with a big write down on power? Well, they already did that. They took a $22 billion write down on the acquisition. Once you get started. <laughs> once you get started, you never know what you're going to find. Um, no, but I think, you know, obviously the stock is up a lot today on that first quarter cash flow number, but I do want to yeah. point out that that's relative to, you know, some expectations that to me at least seemed out of whack from the beginning. When you talk about the cash flow headwinds for the year, you're talking about restructuring, you're talking about unwinding the working capital benefits from GE Capital. Uh, None of those struck me as being particularly first quarter weighted. Now, the first three months of the year are always seasonally the weakest for GE from a cash flow perspective, but you're not going to necessarily get that restructuring buildup. So I don't think it's, you know, that's, I I guess I I would take a little bit more of a cautious tone to this first quarter beat. Okay, I'll go with that. Total intangible assets, common size, 25%-ish versus in the old days, it was 14 or 16%. So... I would suggest Paul Power put a thousand basis points on. Yeah, exactly. And intangibles. I, you know, to Brooke's point, when I looked at the GE numbers today, I said, "Wow, that's a that's a big beat on the cash story. That's great." But the question is, how sustainable is it? And, you know, you know, I think that's really an issue for investors. I mean, uh, he's yeah. done a good job here, and as Brooke said, yeah, he's probably going to have a very short leash from investors. So he's, I think maybe he bought himself some time here. 
Right. But I do think it's a bit of a timing issue why you're seeing that cash flow number come in as it did in the first quarter. And GE has said that they had some orders come in, some progress payments come in that were earlier than what they expected. So that does raise the question about what you're looking at for the balance of the year. And they're maintaining their guidance for a $2 billion, as much as a $2 billion cash burn. Brooke Sutherland, thank you so much uh, with Bloomberg News on Generous Electric this morning. Always loud and boisterous on all sorts of things with the market is Michael Purvis at Wheaton who joins us uh, this morning. Michael, just as simple as I can state it, how do you find the courage to be in equities right now after the melt-up from December 26th? Yeah, I mean, the the melt-up has been one of the most vicious melt-ups on record, uh, right? And, the, you know, you know, back in December 20, uh, 26th, you could certainly make a very obvious valuation argument. You know, equities really were mispriced. You know, when you go back through the uh, Q4 volatility, earnings didn't really miss at all in Q3. Economic data, at least in this country, came in just fine. So you could certainly, you know, make a good argument that, you know, another one or two P.E., um, points could be added on even without an earnings pickup. That's that's been achieved with this with this vicious rally. Now we're looking at really you know how 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 much stronger can earnings growth get? And the current season seems to reveal yet again, earnings recession is not at bay. Earnings are you know in that sort of middle upper middle single digit growth right, solid. which is which is solid but solid. not spectacular That's right. A new and, word from Richard Claret, a solid <laughs> right, and and solid is you know kind of really defined this sort of you know, this sort of new normal condition that we've been living with for the last few years in a way. The solid, never spectacular. We had a little bit of spectacular last year, and it, it was arguably what helped get us into some of the trouble in Q4, right? You know, um, Tom, as you, as you may remember, I've been arguing that, you know, solid, sort of almost mediocre, but solid GDP and earnings growth is better for equities than than uh, than than a really robust GDP acceleration and earnings acceleration because that so, also so Michael it seems like cycle. you know solid earnings. Um, it seems like you know one of the things I hear from investors is kind of what's the next catalyst? Does it have to be the Fed? Is the Fed the only thing that can take this thing another leg higher? You mean and so look, the Fed pivot is solid. And, is, but if, is, do we is, need another cut? Is, so, so so to actually to move from a Fed. Uh, uh, Pivot to to sort of pause to actually a cut. I think is where you're going. Yep. Will they actually agree with the money markets or come down to the money markets? Um, I'm not so sure that's really rewarded, right? You know, um, at this point, uh, you know, if anything, I probably think people say, "Hey, wait, what is really wrong with this market? What is the Fed seeing in this that I'm not doing that they actually have to cut?" Um, and I'm not necessarily sure the Fed would even cut. I'm actually pretty much of the view that the Fed is 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 the do nothing is is the most easiest path. Uh, the most probable path for the next uh, four quarters for the Fed is really just to be on pause here. I think it's also important to recognize that you know you step back. Well, you know the the ECB pivot has been seems to be deferred at some point into the distant uh, hazy future. Um, the BOJ is business as usual over there. So with the Fed pivot in, um, you know where's the next? big central bank stimulus going to come from here, right? Um, it, 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 arguably, the Fed's thinking is going to be, it, it needs to come when things get really bad. And when you look at the economic data here and even overseas, um, it's hard to see really yep. bad. All right. So where do you see value here? 
So, you know, one of the fascinating things that unfolded over the last three months is that because of the Q4 volatility and because of the Fed pivot, you had massive distortion. So if you look at like the tech sector, XLK ETF relative to the XLF, uh, um, financials, uh, the, the, the financials ETF, uh, whether on a price basis or on a relative value, you know, relative PE basis, that have been stretched to multi-decade extremes, right? So, you know, I'm not crazy about the, the, the financials um, earning stream, right? It's pretty boring. You know, big banks are going to be pretty boring. But can I buy them when BAC right. is trading at 10 times with a 2% dividend with a solid franchise? Um, uh, absolutely. So so I've been, you know, constructive on financials. And in the same vein, utilities. You look at the relative value of utilities that got massively bid into this bond rally um, and with the volatility, right? The relative value uh, of utilities to the market was stretched to uh, multi-decade uh, extremes. Every time it's gotten to those extreme levels, utilities have put in a nice 10 to 15% um, uh, sell-off and, and also, uh, you know, relative performance. So right now, I'm basically long back for utilities. Very good. Uh, Michael Purvis, thank you so much for reading this morning. Just a quick look there at the equity markets. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.